Um, Please accompany me to Luke chapter 2 as we're going to continue, of course, as I mentioned, our series on the songs of Christmas, various uh, prophecies and songs of people um, and an angel, actually, as we saw last week, that are sung about the coming of the Messiah of Jesus Christ. And as we're in the, you know, we're in the throes of what we would call the Advent season. And Advent, you know, is just, we have Advent calendars. It's, it's a word for, you know, we're waiting until the coming of Jesus. And, you know, it's kind of a reenactment of what they were going through back then, except, you know, they didn't have a date. You know, they didn't say, oh, you know, the 25th of December. They, they didn't really have an, a good understanding until God revealed to them the coming of the Messiah. But, it's instructive to us to remember that Advent, there was a lot of waiting going on, just as we, you know, wait today for the Christmas, the ultimate, you know, Christmas day to arrive, where we can spend time with our families, and we're all in expectation of that as we, you know, we go to work, and we we see decorations everywhere, and we come home, and we're like, okay, one more day, you know, one more day closer to the Christmas thing. We have to remember that in Jesus' time, before Jesus came, there was a significant waiting period, and it was longer than, you know, it was longer than 25 days. It was really since the beginning of time that God had appointed His Son to come at a specific time in order to deliver His people. And there's a question um, that is instructive for us to ask ourselves about this particular instance that we ask ourselves every day. And we make choices on this question um, on what we're going to do with our day or what we're going to watch on TV. And the question is, is it worth our time? Is it worth our time to wait? And we we see this in, you know, restaurants. You know, if we see there's a long line in the drive-thru, we think, is it worth my time to wait? you know, to get a, you know, $1 half pound bean and cheese burrito from Del Taco. Is that worth my time? <laughs> or we can think of, like, movies. Is it, is it worth my time to wait in line? Or is it, is it worth my time to wait until the movie comes out on some kind of streaming service? And we, we see that with attractions where, you know, the, the line for um, Pirates of the Caribbean is 180 minutes, and you think, okay, is it worth my time to spend in this line, or should I arrange something different? And, you know, we even think of that of, like, that, that's also in our day-to-day basis when we're browsing the internet. You know, we click on an article, a news article, and, you know, we see some kind of tragedy happened in a country, and there's an advertisement that plays, and, you know, the, the page is loading, and you're like, well, I guess I'll never know, because I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to wait for this. But when something's really good, when that hamburger is just absolutely, you know, amazing, we'll say that was worth the wait. That was worth the wait. Or better yet, the, you know, the really uh, um, hyperbolic version, I can die now. You know, I can die happy because that was worth the wait. And, you know, we, we say it in, in jest, you know, I can die happy. But today we're going to look at a Christmas song which is referred to in Latin as the Nunc Dimittis. And it doesn't sound as cool as the Magnificat, the Nunc Dimittis. Um, and I don't think Mariah Carey will actually insert that into her next Christmas album. But the Nunc Dimittis is Latin for, and it's referring to the first few words of, um, 
of Simeon's, a man named Simeon's song in this chapter that we're looking at, it means now you dismiss. Now you dismiss. And it's essentially, it essentially means now you, you are letting me depart in peace. Or in other words, you know, I can die happy. I can die in peace. And Simeon, a man named Simeon, is going to say this, and he's going to talk about how Christ is coming, and to be able to see the Christ child was absolutely worth the wait. So last week, of course, we saw the actual birth of Jesus happen. We read about the actual birth of Jesus and the angels announcing it to the shepherds. And today, we're going to look at a passage that seems a little bit late um, to be in the the nativity story. It's actually approximately um, one month after the birth of Jesus, when Jesus is presented at the temple to go through the ceremonial purification. The, uh, his mother Mary and he are going to go through the ceremonial um, purification that's prescribed in the Levitical law to present Jesus at the temple. So they're, they're going to this temple for this reason about an, a month after Jesus is born, and there's a man named Simeon who encounters the baby Jesus, and he indicates to us as readers, and Luke shows us in his gospel something, that he had waited his entire life for this moment. Why is that? Because Simeon sees in this one child, and he sees correctly, the wideness and the profundity of God's promises finally coming to fruition finally being fulfilled. And he shows all of us today something that we should constantly be learning, that Jesus was worth waiting for. So let's start with the reading right here in Luke chapter 2 and see this this man named Simeon that the writer Luke introduces us to. Verse 25 of chapter 2, he says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, And this man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So, first we read, we understand that Simeon is called a righteous and a devout man. He was a Jew who lived his life as a true believer in God. He lived his life by faith. And he was waiting for something very specific. He was waiting for, in verse 25, the consolation of Israel. Or we might say he, he was waiting for Israel to be comforted. Now that sounds, doesn't sound like a great existence. You know, my, my whole life is marked by waiting. You know, it sounds a little bit passive to just spend your whole life waiting for something to happen. And we, we understand, and you might be thinking of other cases where we use as a Christian phrase, you know, we're, we're waiting for the Lord. And that doesn't sound too exciting, like, oh, let's all get together and wait. And we have worship songs that say, you know, we will wait for you. And you might mistakenly think that, oh, is God just always tardy that we have to wait for him? Like, we're on time, God. You know, where are you? Is, is that exactly the case? No, not quite. Waiting in Scripture refers to a holy submission to God's will, to God's law, and God's timing. It's not just a passive experience, but it's a posture of the heart to submit to God. You, I know you're going to do something. You've promised you, you're going to do something. I'm just going to wait in expectation. And we know there are different ways to wait. People make 
you know, use of their time in different ways. You can wait in dread, especially if you think, if you know something's going to happen, like an operation or, or I just had, uh, you know, jury duty, you know, and it's a lot of waiting and you're like, dread, when is this going to be over? And it was just four days, that felt like eight days, you know. But we can also wait in expectation. And that's the kind of waiting that's prescribed to true believers in Scripture. We see this in the Psalms. In Psalm 27, verse 14, the psalmist says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then he commends to us, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So the psalm right here, the psalmist prescribes courage and not despair as we wait. Not, don't end up in a place of hopelessness. But while waiting, you know, is a good thing to learn. It teaches us patience, and it's good for your character, and it's good for your personality. And we, we, you know, we teach children to wait for its own sake because it's a virtue. Patience is a virtue. It wouldn't be worth it, after all, if the waiting wasn't warranted. If it was for something that was going to disappoint us in the end. You know, like, that, like if you waited three hours for just a disappointing brunch or something like that. It's, w- waiting has to have some kind of value in the end. And Simeon had good reason to wait because God was revealing, God was promising to reveal his deliverance for Israel and his deliverance for the whole world. Simeon was waiting for something specific and the, it was for the fulfillment of God's promises. Um, look what with me. Um, it's on the screen, but look at with the um, look with me at Psalm. I mean Isaiah chapter fifty-two verses, starting in verse uh, eighteen, I believe. I'm sorry, verse eight. There might be a typo there. Um, so Isaiah fifty-two verse eight. Um, it says, "The voice of the watchmen, they lift up their voice." Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem, for the Lord has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of of our God. So Isaiah's prophecy here indicates that God will visit his people. And Isaiah is prophesying in a time of God's impending judgment where he will judge his people for their idolatry. And God says, when I visit you, I'm not going to come in judgment, but I will come in comfort. Which gives Simeon the expectation to understand, hey, God's going to come sometime in comfort. God's going to take Israel and Jerusalem specifically, as we see in this this passage in Isaiah, from a place of spiritual wastelands, and he's going to bring them forward into his plan of redemption. And so Simeon took this scripture seriously, and Luke singles him out as a true believer in a time of real spiritual lethargy and spiritual darkness that was in Israel. And even though it had been, you know, hundreds of years since Isaiah made this prophecy, Simeon lived out these promises in expectation every single day of his life, and he lived his life by God's promises. So he didn't have the luxury of an advent calendar. He didn't know the date or the time that God was going to 
bring and start his plan of redemption through the incarnation of Jesus. He didn't know these things, but he always expected it. And we should understand that Simeon's expectation was not presumptuous. It wasn't expecting anything other than God, something that God had promised. And so God doesn't want us to be indifferent to his promises, so we should take heart to heart that Simeon's reaction and the way he was so emotionally invested in the coming of the Messiah, we should take great consideration and apply that to our own lives to rest on God's promises. So Simeon's resolve to see God's salvation never broke. But we should also note that Simeon, he was waiting for, of course, the, the corporate promises that God made to Israel, but there is another added point to Simeon in the story that we should look at back in Luke chapter 2. In verse 26, God had not only you know, promised Israel that he was going to come visit them and come comfort them, but God made a specific promise to Simeon. Verse 26 says it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So this was an exceptional thing. And in many ways, Simeon would, he would literally have the promise of, you know, Psalm 27 fulfilled, where he would look upon the goodness of the Lord. He would see the physical body, the physical little 30-day-old Christ child right before him. And in verse 27, it says, He came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, the ceremonial purification, Simeon comes into the temple just right then, led by the Spirit of God. And we see that God appointed this particular occasion to not only fulfill the promise He made to Simeon, but to fulfill in a larger way the promises He's making toward the nation of Israel. And eventually, as we will see, the promises He's making toward the entire world, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So here's where we begin to read Simeon's song, or if you prefer to call it the, the Nunc Dimittis. Verse 28 says that he took up the child in his arms. You know, he, I don't know. He takes up the child right there. And he blesses God, and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So this is the first part, if you will, of, of Simeon's song. And look at his first statement right here. His first statement is something we already talked about, that he's basically saying, you can let your servant depart in peace. He says, now you're dismissing me and it's, I can die happy if you will, because God is fulfilling his personal promise to Simeon, because he's saying, it's, you can let me depart in peace according to your word in verse 29. And, you know, having the baby in his arms, he's looking at the Christ child and he's saying, my eyes have seen your salvation. And it was probably, you know, a startling moment for Mary and Joseph. We're like, okay, there's a guy holding our baby. You know, does he work here? What is he doing? But he's telling them and he's prophesying to them and he's pointing the direction of anyone who will listen to them and say this is the fulfillment of God's promises what I'm holding in my hand 
is the fulfillment of God's promises. And so we should understand that God's promises, God's salvation, if you will, is not simply an event. We know that salvation, if you're a believer and you know Scripture, you know that salvation was accomplished and completed by Christ's atonement, dying on the cross, and resurrecting from the dead. But we should understand that salvation really is a person. Salvation is Christ. And the way we can have Christ's forgiveness today, you know, 2,000 years after He died and rose again from the dead, is because Christ is living and He is a person and He's the one who's actually actively saving us. And so the salvation, He says, is this Christ child. I'm looking at salvation So Jesus is the one who really actively saves. Salvation is in a person, the person of Christ. But the second part we should note that Simeon addresses is not only God's promises specifically to Simeon, but the fact that God fulfills His plan in this Christ child that He's holding. He fulfills His plan for the redemption um, of the world. So God had been preparing in verse 31, he's preparing the Christ for the, or in the presence of all peoples, preparing him for the plan of salvation. Um, it was uh, the Puritan, Thomas Brooks, he had a good word on this, that the Father, in preparing Christ, ordained, formed, made fit and able Christ's human nature to undergo, suffer, and fulfill that for which he was sent into the world. And so we, we see the Father's heart that this was in the mind of God the Father to send His Son long before the creation of the world, so before the foundation of the world. God had thought of this, and now we see the mind of God in the plan of God coming forth and coming to fruition. This is what God had planned from eternity. And what is the goal of it? It's a light of revelation for the Gentiles, and it's a glory for Israel. You see, the Gentiles, they were outside of the you know, immediate covenant that God had made with Israel. God had made this covenant with Israel. He had given them the Scriptures. He had given them the Law. And in so many ways, He revealed Himself to them. They were extremely privileged, and they didn't know how privileged they were, and they constantly backslid and fell into idolatry and worshipped other gods, even though God proved himself over and over and tried to bring them close and kind of shepherd them back in with his law and with his prophets. But God says right here that, or Simeon says, and God says through Simeon, if you will, that the Christ child is going to be the revelation and the way in which God will primarily reveal himself to the entire world, to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the Gentile nations. That's what he's referring to. But he's not only a light of revelation to the Gentiles, he's also the glory for Israel. He is the glory of God shining to Israel, creating an immediate immediacy to his presence within Israel. We see that in Matthew chapter 1, you know, verse 23, where he references that this, this Christ child shall be called Emmanuel, which means, you know, God with us. But we also see it in John, more explicitly in John chapter 1, verse 14, which is on the screen. Um, John chapter 1, verse 14, that says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. Jesus coming to Israel and coming first to them within His people, this is the glory of God in their midst. Isn't that profound that God would take on human flesh? He would be measured in age by our usual standards of time where Jesus is a month old now. What a, what a paradox that is. What, that God of all eternity would take on flesh in this way and reveal Himself in an acceptable way. That He would be touchable. That someone be, would be able to lift Him up. Isn't that profound? And we should understand that God had decided that really this was the role of His chosen servant, the Messiah, that God would be in their midst and He would be able to deliver them and then people would recognize the salvation by seeing Him. Look at Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, starting in verse 6. God is describing His servant, the Messiah. He says, I am the Lord... And I have called you, the Messiah, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. So this was God's plan. And the plan was revelation. The plan was revealing Himself as the only hope for redemption to a lost world to a world that was lost in darkness and a world that was blind. And so, right here, there's a lot going on in what Simeon's saying, but I just want to draw your attention to a few things that are happening um, theologically right here with what God in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how, how is He accomplishing this salvation? And first of all, we should note that the Holy Spirit here reveals and announces the Christ. We see the role of the Spirit in revealing and leading Simeon to identify this is the child. We see no other markers that the child had a halo around his head, that the child had a name tag that said, I'm the Messiah. The Holy Spirit revealed this to Simeon. And so there's the Holy Spirit's role in this. But we all see something that we already went over a little bit was, was that the fact that God the Father prepares and appoints the Christ Jesus was appointed and prepared, as we see in his song, for the work of salvation. And so God is sending the Son. The Holy Spirit is leading people to the Son. But we should note that the Son himself isn't a passive player in the role of salvation. And that he will grow up and he will be actually opposed so all of God's plans of salvation moving forward, this amazing plan of redemption that he has for his people, not only for the people, but for the entire nations of the world, all the nations of the world. And yet we see theologically what's going to happen, as Simeon will continue to say, is that humanity will also oppose the sign of the Christ. So look at the second part of this passage, starting in verse 33. We see the reaction of Mary and Joseph. His, mother, his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. After hearing from angels and having this miraculous birth came by, they, they just were continually being surprised. They still had some room to be surprised. And in verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, 
Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And then there's this parenthetical, and a sword will pierce through your own heart, or your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts, from many hearts, may be revealed. So what's going on here? Well, first of all, we should note that though there might have been a lot of people in this temple, there might have been a good crowd around them, Simeon's prophecy seems to be primarily directed to Mary and Joseph to reassure them of not only the great promises and the wideness and the scope of God's promises, but also the narrowness, if you will, of Christ's appeal to humanity, that he is going to be opposed He is going to be rejected, and many will fall and many will rise because of him. And we see the conflict in which Jesus will grow up, and he's telling this to Joseph and Mary. And so we see, first of all, that he's appointed for the rising and the falling of many in Israel. What what exactly does that mean, rising and falling? Well, this is a, a sort of power ascribed to God in the Old Testament about the rankings of people, if you will, the people in authority and people in power. And it's basically a reference to the fact that in God's true kingdom, when God rules, he puts whatever, whoever he wants in the place he wants. In, for example, in Psalm 75, verse 6, the psalmist says, For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment putting down one and lifting up another. So when Simeon references that he's going to be appointed for the rising and falling of many in Israel, he's, he's pointing to Jesus as God, first of all, but also as the supreme authority and the gatekeeper of salvation, the gatekeeper of God's kingdom. And as Jesus grows up and begins his earthly ministry and starts preaching that fact, the religious leaders are not going to be happy. They're not going to like him because they're saying their, their thing is, hey, we're the gatekeepers of salvation. We're the ones who decide whether you're good or whether you're bad. And Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm the one who's going to decide that. And we see that in places like, it's not in the notes, but like Matthew 21, where Jesus is saying, even the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors are going to get to heaven, be in place before you, religious leaders, because you aren't believing in me. Because those people know they need a Messiah. You think you're so self-righteous. And so God has that, Jesus in the flesh was going to have that authority, and it's going to be offensive to people. We see that he is going to be for a sign in verse 35 that is opposed, which is to say that God will perform signs and miracles through Christ for the Jews, but Jews will, the Jews will eventually reject him. And so God has this great and this wide plan of salvation. He has these huge promises that he's fulfilling, and yet the appeal suddenly becomes extremely narrow, where people are seeing the glory of God within their midst, and they're seeing the promises of God fulfilling, but their hearts are saying no. Their hearts are in conflict with God. And so we think, well, what is going on? What happened? What, why is his appeal so narrow? Wouldn't he want to appeal to, to as many people as possible? Wouldn't he want to be inclusive 
as inclusive as possible. We think of the, the appeal of uh, movies like that just came out, Star Wars. It's, those are often called um, tentpole films, and it usually means that these are the kind of movies that, you know, that keep the lights on in the production companies. These are the movies that you can bank on. Even if it's a terrible movie, it's going to make billions of dollars. You know, that, that's the kind of thing. And they say, this is mass appeal because we have toys, because we have spin-offs. Let's release another Star Wars. This is, a, this is something that's going to keep our, our company, our production company afloat. But Jesus doesn't have, it seems, you know, that mass appeal. He isn't all of a sudden welcome to the arms of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, we should see that this fact shouldn't surprise us because Isaiah depicts Christ as a suffering servant and he describes him and he says in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Or we can go to the book of John again. In John chapter 1, the very, first, or the very chapter that talked about the glory of God being in the midst of Israel, John chapter 1, verse 11 notes to us that he came to his own. He came to his own as the promise of God, and his own people did not receive him. So not merely that he will be opposed, but that there are certain people that are opposing him. The religious leaders, you know, the devil, the human heart, and the, the human heart that's really hard to the promises of God in the midst of Israel. And they will reject the sign of his coming, which is not just his birth, Incarnation. That's that's you know that's the very nice thing. It's great, his birth. But he this is a Christ that will also come and die on the cross, die on a bloody cross, and be resurrected from the dead. And that's the sign that the Jews and other people will oppose. In First Corinthians chapter one, um, verse twenty-two, we read this about you know that the sign of the cross. Excuse me while I flip a couple pages over. The, the sign of the cross. Uh, for the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So look what he's noting. He says it's the way in which Christ comes is great. The implications are profound. But because he dies on a cross, because that's such a shameful death, he will be rejected. But God keeps his promise to Israel. God keeps his promise to humanity by no other means than the cross. And if we come to God, if we want God to fulfill his promises in our life, we cannot go anywhere else but through the risen Lord who was crucified on the cross. This is the plan. This wasn't an aberration. This wasn't a, something that surprised God, but Jesus came, the incarnate God, to die on the cross to fulfill his promises and to open wide the gates of heaven to anyone who would believe in his name. And we think, well, you know, that, that's, that's kind of a, a tough thing. You know, that's why churches often, they, they often stay far away from the cross because, you know, it's, it's a little bit distasteful. It's not aesthetically pleasing. So we say, you know, churches might say, well, we're going to go for social activism or, you know, social change or something like that, or we're, we're going to 
um, talk about how God can bless you in this life, but really the message we have to say on a day-to-day basis, on a week-by-week basis, even during Christmas, is simply this cross. But of course, the cross is offensive, and the sign of the cross will be opposed, as we see in this chapter right here. And not only is it opposed in generally, but it seems that Mary's own hardness of heart, perhaps, to the, her belief in Christ will contribute to this general opposition to him because he might not be what she expects him to be. In verse 25, a sword will pierce through your own heart also. She will even experience some kind of offense from who he is and the way in which God's fulfilling his promises to the world. So we learn from Simeon's song that Christmas is a time of conflict and you guys are like, oh, we know that. Like, our family is crazy, you know, whatever. And, but the offense of Christmas isn't, you know, just saying Merry Christmas to, you know, um, your, your Starbucks person or, or anything like that. But the offense of Christmas is really the offense it brings to our own hearts. The fact that God had to come to us out, outside of our deserving not because we deserved it, but he actually had to come to us and change us in order so that we might believe in him, so that we might be saved. Because our hearts are naturally opposed to being saved, naturally opposed to the Savior. But because Christmas is a time of conflict and we're apt to forget the promises of God, we're apt to forget even you know, the, the cliche, we're apt to forget the reason for the season, you know, we can lose Jesus in Christmas, and you know, we need to put Christ back in Christmas, but how exactly do we do this? Do we you know, go back in time and try to, to be with Simeon and look at the Christ child and we say, oh, this is what it's all about? Do we seek out paintings of the, the baby Jesus and just stare at them until we just get it? You know, what exactly should we take as instruction from Simeon's, Simeon's words, I have seen your salvation? Well, we should note that the temple probably had a lot of people. The temple probably had a lot of people running around and completely missing the fact that this was the incarnate God in Simeon's hands. And so what's the difference about Simeon? Why does the Bible single him out? Why does Luke single him out for us? Was well, it's because he looked on Christ with faith. Simeon is singled out because he looked on him as the fulfillment of God's promises. And so we should note, first thing, that we should look upon salvation. We should look upon salvation in the person of Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning, you should look upon Christ for salvation. Not physically, you know, you can't see him at this moment, but look upon him spiritually and say, this is the one I've been waiting for. This is the one I need. This is the Savior I need to take away my sins so that I can be made right with God, so that I can enter the kingdom of heaven. And even if you are a Christian, look upon your salvation and meditate on your salvation and see how it changes your heart. Because Simeon was a changed man. Simeon was prepared for death itself to come and take him because he had seen, he had this encounter with Christ. But the second thing we should note for our own lives as we apply this passage to our lives, we should also just wait on God's promises. When we look on Jesus, the whole availability of God's promises are available to us because God fulfills his promise in no other person than Christ. 
So as believers, we take the psalmist's cue and we take Simeon's cue and just look on Christ and look in expectation of His fulfilling our promises. God's promises for Simeon drove him toward a holy life, a devout life, and so they should for us. One last uh, verse I want to read to you. Um, in, in the book of Isaiah, we've been in Isaiah a lot, I know. But Isaiah chapter 25, verse 9 says this, and it's referring to a day when God will right all wrongs, when God abolishes death itself, and God will eternally establish peace. And he says, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. For believers today, we are expecting the coming of Christ. Not the first coming, but the second coming. When Jesus will come back and bring us into His kingdom. And Jesus Himself is our present comfort. He is our future comfort. And when we're waiting on the coming of the Lord, we're waiting, remember for the same person that Simeon waited for. We're waiting on the person of Christ. We're not just waiting for an event, you know, the, the end times, if you will, but we're waiting on Christ. So let us learn to wait and let us have that posture that is a, a, a holy submission to God as we wait for His second coming, even in this time of year. So let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the revelation of Your Son, the fact that we can see Him, that You revealed Him to us. Lord, we thank You for revealing Your heart to us, knowing that this was out of Your love, and that, Lord, it was Your love that drove You to send Christ to us so that we could be made right with You. Lord, we in all our anxieties, in all our stresses, in all our sin, Lord, we, we have seeked help elsewhere. And Lord, help us to look on Christ as our only source of help, as the only one who can bring us out of a pit of despair, out of a pit of sin. And so we thank you for your gift of salvation, for fulfilling your promises as we wait for you to even fulfill even further promises in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.